0: Welcome to the EMS Educator Podcast, powered by Prodigy EMS.
1: Join us for relevant, high-quality discussions around the best practices in EMS education. You'll find interviews with experts in EMS, education, simulation, medical direction, leadership, and more.
0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the EMS Educator Podcast. I'm Rob Lawrence, and in this edition, the National Registry has announced that the 2023 recertification window is now, wait for it, open. Uh, for the for EMTs, AEMTs and paramedics. The deadline is March 31st, 2023. In today's EMS Educator podcast, we will invite our guests to discuss what is new and different about this year's National Registry changes, particularly around distributive changes and the role of CE credentialing and much, much more. And to bring our guests in, of course, as always, is my amazing co-host, Hillary Gates.
1: Thank you, Rob. I'm really pleased today to have with us two amazing educators and our guest host, our ghost, uh, as always, Maya Dorset. We have with us today Megan Corey and Casey Patrick, and thank you for being here. Megan, can you introduce yourself, please? Sure. I'm
2: Megan Corey. I am the paramedic program director at the City College of San Francisco Paramedic Program, where I've been a full-time faculty um, since 2003, um, and I'm a licensed paramedic uh, in the state of California, and um, I also happen to be on the Board of Advisors for the Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum, and I'm a new member of the uh, Board of Directors for the COA EMSP, uh, representing NEMC.
1: Any other acronyms? I feel like I didn't do <laughs> no. enough acronyms.
2: The bingo card is already full. It's amazing. Oh, <laughs> uh, education. I've got plenty of more of those. To Great. Pull out.
1: And Casey, over to you.
2: Sir, sure. My name is
3: Casey Patrick. I'm an emergency physician, EMS physician in the greater Houston area. I serve as the medical director for ESD-11 mobile health care and the assistant medical director for Montgomery County Hospital District EMS. In my uh, spare time, I actually still take care of patients in the emergency department as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Great. Maya, one of the things that we talked about on our last episode um, among the NREMT news was the lifting of all limits for distributive education, which seem to have come out of the pandemic. You're um, newly appointed on the board there. Tell us a little bit about this decision, and um, we'll jump off with uh, some definitions as well um, to make sure everyone knows what all these terms mean.
4: I think most people are familiar with the continuing education requirements for recertification, which are 60 hours, um, 30 of which uh, fell into the national category, and then there was uh, some local and state components. Prior to the pandemic, there was a requirement that some component of that was considered live or synchronous, which meant that there was an instructor in front of a class that could actually be virtually over Zoom, um, but also the sort of traditional type skills labs and in-person education that we were familiar with. And there was a requirement there was a certain component of that had to be live. One of the big changes that happened um, at the National Registry and also at the level of many states during the pandemic when we weren't going to come together in person was that they lifted those limits to allow for distributive education, which is that education could be delivered asynchronously. So, for example listening to a podcast or in a recorded setting, and award CE and continuing education for that. As part of this process, right, this was almost, you know, uh, a PDSA, right, a change um, that was prompted by sort of a, a need in that environment. And then there was a lot of discussion within the community as whether or not Do we actually have to have this live requirement or can we increase the flexibility and allow no limits on distributive education? So through a process of engagement of many, many stakeholders who gave a lot of feedback, both national organizations as well as a public comment period prior to the passage of a provisionary resolution, Everything was very much in favor of lifting uh, the distributive education limits, and so that's what the board decided to do after engaging with the stakeholders.
1: Great. So, Maya, you, you defined uh, distributive as um, education that is not offered in a live context or with a live instructor. Uh, in real time, you use the word asynchronous, which is a way to say that it's not live um, online per se, but you may be watching a video. And um, we did a lot of this in the last couple of years. All of us um, have done quite a bit of learning online. And Megan, you have an amazing pedigree uh, and a wealth of knowledge about what, why some education works in some cases better than others and what's good for students and what's appropriate. Can you talk through kind of on a global scale uh, what the implications of this decision are for our industry and for educators and students?
2: Yeah, I think um, it's funny. You should say that, you know, the pedigree part, because I still had to return to these definitions because I do think we have since, and in particular, since COVID, we have kind of conflated a lot of different things and, and we've, <laughs> it's made it very confusing. So even if you're in education, if you've been a distance educator for a long time before all of this, it was, it was really pretty straightforward. They had very clear definitions. You had distance education. You took maybe introduction to online teaching and learning. IOTL was a pretty standard kind of thing, no matter where you were in the country or even in the world. And there were principles of it, you know, reaching out to learners, to, you know, um, making sure that your uh, sites were accessible. You had a rubric to follow. I mean, it was pretty clear. And this was long before. Then we have this event occur and everything had to shift to emergency remote instruction, which uh, there was a great article. And I can't remember whether it was Educause or, or somewhere that uh, someone wrote pretty quickly after COVID shifted everything to the remote, mostly remote and online platforms um, that really tried to distinguish and make sure everyone understood this is emergency remote instruction. This is not traditional distance education or online learning as we've known about it. And I thought that was so important, that was such an important article to share out there and people were sharing it left and right that were in distance learning. So. That, but but it was very hard to get that message out because not only were you talking to other educators but you're talking to um you know the the consumer those students their parents you know all ages that this is not what online learning is this is remote instruction and people have done an amazing job at pivoting and of course the technology exploded and a beautiful thing happened we even if you were in distance education suddenly you had these new tools coming out to play with that did, that still accomplished the fundamental principles of engaging the student and reaching out to the student. And all of these discussions about, um, equity came out too. Is, you know, on the one hand, it, is this inequitable because, you know, we have people that have small children and they're in areas where they don't have good bandwidth and they don't have the wifi or the computers. And even if they did, you know, they've got little kids to, who have to be on zoom and, and other things. And then on the other hand, there was, actually now we can reach people when they're working and, you know, they can actually accomplish their educational goals because there's some flexibility to it. If the educator was actually uh, attuned to that, to how to be flexible. So I I think, you know, there's a lot to kind of unpack about what, what happened and what's happening. And so we come up with these terms. And the first thing I did when I saw the, um, the, the new um, decision by the uh, NREMT was Look up what they meant by distributive, because um, you see distributed, you see distributive, you see online, you see distance education, and you're seeing too that even the federal government came out with regulation, you know, a few when it, whatever it was, the um, 2021, I think, of September, trying to redefine this that so that it could line up with. Um, federal student aid and, and what it would cover for federal student aid, uh, Pell grants and other things. So uh, there's still that this kind of stuff going on. And so I, I, I really was looking for some clarity as to what actually, you know, the national registry meant. So actually, maybe we can return to that for a second. And the NREMT definition, um, is that method of delivery. Uh, Thank you, uh, Maya, for that. The method of delivery uh, of EMS education where the educator and the student are not able to interact in real time. So that's important to distinguish because um, online is one example, but as you said earlier, um, you know, videos, podcasts, um, journal article reviews, that kind of things are are other examples. So I I think that part of it um, was really important, trying to kind of get at that first another thing is the term distributive learning sometimes is synonymous with uh, a practice of there's distributed or uh, spaced practice um, and, and learning you know spacing out your that is that is uh shown to be superior than masked, you know, trying to kind of cram it all into a couple of days or into one session. And so we, hearing that, I think, uh, can be confusing as well. Uh, so I think that's a first step is kind of making sure everyone understands what is it. And I think that's what the questions will be at first is surrounding, okay, what does this mean? Um, so, So I think, you know, that would be step number one is, is to unpack that. Uh, and I think National Registry, and maybe I'm wrong, you can jump in and tell me if I'm wrong, but I think that that's where the, um, the accreditation or the approval process comes in. Okay, where do we control this? Where, where, where does it need that oversight? And CAPSI came into it, and then the state approval came into it, and that's where, I think we landed is, okay, now the question is, is that what will they be looking at? What will CAPSE be looking at? And what will the state approval process be to ensure that we're accomplishing what we want to accomplish here?
4: I think the hard thing there is as far as this discussion, right? Some people said, you know, well, you can't necessarily control the quality, but in some ways you can actually, if you design a process, you can actually control the quality better than what is delivered in some live settings. I think we've all been to a live class where we were able to interact with the instructor but it was not a particularly educational experience uh, for a multitude of stories. Um, I couldn't
2: agree more. (laughs) I completely agree. Sociologists have done... tons of research. We've had a lot of research over the last two decades um, from a lot of, you know, social psychologists, sociologists sitting in classrooms and, and doing this kind of research and showing that about, you know, you have a class of 30, the same three people will throw up their hands. Those three people are most likely to be very similar to the instructor in everything, education level, economic background, um, gender, race. I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's been, you know, replicated time and time again. So. Well,
1: and and we just have to point out to get, throw everyone a bone here that, um, EMS educators are probably the least trained educators of all educators across the planet. I mean, um, I, I also do some work as an adjunct instructor, and I got a little bit more education in um, my teaching in a college setting, but not very much. But the most education I ever got about how to teach was how to be a high school teacher. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, that was a lot of education, four years worth and then and then some. But we all know that EMS uh, educators are often thrown into that position or volunteer for the position with little to no training, just to make sure we uh, are being sensitive to that.
0: To your point, Megan, you know, who wants to commute for an hour to go into a classroom to have the yeah. slides read to them? Well, as you say, Hilary, people thrown in here, you can be the educator for the week or whatever. Um, but of course, distributive nature means that, you know, you can have the subject matter expert, like we did with Refresh, deliver the subject that they not only mastered in, but probably wrote the paper on. And I think there's something to be said about that.
4: I do think that not to totally delve off topic, but when we talk about the education you get in being an educator, I think it's like a lot of things, right? Do we value the expertise associated with the job? Um, and I think that in general, there's many areas of EMS, not just education, that can look in valuing professional development of people who are taking on those yes. other roles, whether it be education or leadership or all those kinds of things. So... I think it's one symptom of a broader issue within EMS. I do agree with the point that when education can be distributive, right, it does allow access to subject matter expertise. I think that does in some ways get a little bit at that equity issue, depending on where you're practicing. And it also, I think the bigger issue is that it allows you to expand your knowledge beyond the limitations of local practice. Um, Very often, right, we talk about Scope of practice. Scope of practice limits what you can do, um, but it doesn't limit what you can know. And I think it's really important that people have access to the education, the evidence, so that they can actually start becoming the drivers of local practice.
1: I love that. Uh, doesn't limit what you can know. Um, let's pivot to the role of the medical director and bring Casey in. Uh, both Casey and Maya are medical directors, and. Um, what does this mean for you as a medical director when you examine the role of distributive education and um, the way that you have been educating your paramedics, both initially, if if that's what you do in your agency, and um, continued education? What uh, what implications does it have for you, Casey?
3: I think first off, I want to acknowledge what what y'all just said, and that is that as an educator, uh, I am not formally trained. My mother was. Uh, um, a trained master's in education. She taught student teachers. She's my hero, but I could never do her job, and I don't. Um, I don't have the background in that area to even try to to venture there. I feel like as a medical director, you know what this ruling means is important to my services. It's important to my medics, but I really feel like globally, I've been to like y'all already said. I've been to terrible live, uh, CE events. I've done excellent, uh, distributive, uh, continuing education and every really variation in between. So I, I don't know if two years, three years, five years from now, this really changes that. And if somebody wants to take the low road, they probably still can as the, the clinical tone setter and in the, in the person that drives the atmosphere, or at least one of the people that drives the atmosphere within the organization from the clinical side, it's, you know, medical direction to me is, is primarily oversight and atmosphere and giving our medics the tools with which to stay engaged. I don't have a magic formula there, how to keep that medic as engaged in year 20 as they are in year one, but I'd like to try to get there. Um, you know, that, this doesn't really affect that necessarily. We still have to be involved in making sure that our folks are certified. But when it comes to, I know y'all have mentioned this, you know, before we, before we went live, you know, that uh, credentialing and competency are entirely different. And the tone that you set for your educational goals and initiatives within your services are, are going to be those goals, regardless of whether people get them from a distributed standpoint or from a live standpoint. And honestly, they probably need a little of each. Uh, to be truly successful because there are probably some topics that are much better suited for a skills session. There's some, you know, they need to see the medical director of their service. They need to hear from them, regardless of whether the presentation's great or not. They need to know my, I feel like they need to know my face and we need to shake hands and talk about their kids and do those sort of things that go along with the live educational setting. And then, you know, distributive just really gives us the leeway to use technology and use the way of the world today. I mean, we're all podcast listeners now. So commutes and downtime and travel time with your family, all those things can be worked into your continuing education program that you have as an individual learner, whether you're, uh, EMT, AMT, paramedic, EMS medical director. And we all work within that technology now, in that platform.
4: So um, I was going to piggyback onto that. Um, so I think the big thing is just because there's no limits on distributive education doesn't mean it needs to all be done distributively. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, right. I think that's a key point. I also think that this allows um, some flexibility that lets me make the most of my time. If there's one thing I've learned as a medical director in person time with my crews is precious, right? They don't have a lot of time. We don't have a lot of time and we really need to make the most of that. So lots of times, right, we bring people in and we spend time doing the lecture component that gives sort of the the baseline cognitive knowledge um, so that we can try and get some time to do some knowledge application in terms of simulation or sort of case discussion. What this allows me to do is say, can I assign some components asynchronously that they can fit in? Can I produce a podcast or do a lecture. You know, I send stuff to my, I do this with my students, right? I send them things ahead of time so that the time that we spend together is really working on knowledge application, giving feedback and building those, doing those things that actually sort of simulate the real relationship between you and your medical director, right? Which is how do you talk through a case? How do you do, right? Like I think debriefing a simulation is a simulation in itself for real life, Debriefs. Um, So to me, that's the great benefit. And I think that the danger is people say, like, now I don't need to do this or put the time in person. I think it's saying, really, the way to do it right is say, one, what is the needs assessment? What are educational needs? And how do I make it so that I can design stuff in a flexible way to best meet the needs of the learners with the flexibility that they need and make our time together really productive in terms of sort of the terminal objectives that I have.
3: Yeah. I'll just add real quickly on into that. Every medic in our service needs to review differential diagnosis of shock. They don't need to see me necessarily do that 17 times. And in fact, that's probably wasteful from my time fiscal standpoint, but every medic in the service or at least every in charge in the service Supervisors, you know, chiefs need to sit down and also walk through that case in a more scenario-based standpoint and secondary debrief. Like like Maya said, mm-hmm. that can't be replicated di- distributively, or at least it's much more difficult. I feel like so trying to start to separate out those things that I've given this talk fifteen times. Let's just record it, assign it, and then you know take it to the the second or third level type discussions. Uh, in person, which to me really maximizes my time. I feel like I get more bang for the buck with the relationship building
0: and the really the, the more uh, higher level uh, clinical approaches. So, before we go any further, don't forget, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and Amazon Music. And don't forget, if you're enjoying the show, please take a second to rate and review us on the platform you're listening on. Of course, we love to get those uh, six stars out of five every time. Before we go any further, let's have a quick word from our sponsor, EMS Gives Life.
5: Hello, I'm Christine Fichter, the Executive Director of EMS Gives Life. At EMS Gifts Life, our mission is simple. We educate the EMS first responder community on how to become a living organ or bone marrow donor and then provide support if you choose to give this gift of life. Our organization was inspired by pro-EMS paramedic Will Lindbergh's selfless decision to anonymously donate a portion of his liver saving the life of a three-year-old boy we know our community is full of heroes who perform life-saving acts every day. It is this heroism and selflessness that we're counting on. More than 6,000 people die each year on the transplant waiting list. Deceased donors are simply not enough. Living organ donors are desperately needed, and our community is up for the challenge. Would you consider being a living donor if you had the support you needed and the assurance that you will go to the top of the list if you ever needed a transplant in the future? Through our partnerships, we can make those promises. If you're curious about living organ or bone marrow donation, let's talk and if you're already a living donor we'd love to hear your story. You can find us at emsgiveslife.org. Thank you.
0: As always, thank you Christine. Now Hillary, we were chatting to Christine a few weeks ago and EMS Gives Life is kind of a fledgling um, sort of 501c3 charity. but what they're actually already doing is they're taking public uh, sector workers who are in need of some kind of uh, transplant or you know uh, kidney um, liver. And I'm actively now trying to match them up, and I think it's a fantastic uh, project.
1: Well, you and I talked about uh, something we discussed years ago, which was – I don't even know why we got on this topic – how does organ donation even work? And EMS Gives Life is about living organ donors, but I've always wondered if that little stamp on the back of my driver's license that says I'm an organ donor, what happens when I get hit by the car? Like, what's the next step? Do my organs actually get harvested and go somewhere? So, uh, listeners, I think um, if you'll nerd out along with us on that topic, we'll uh, explore that on a later episode for sure.
0: We're going to, and uh, there's all sorts of links already and some success stories uh, for EMS Life, and we'll also put those in the show notes, and uh, don't forget just to visit their website that Christine just told you about. We're here on the EMS Educator Podcast with our guests, uh, Dr. Casey Patrick uh, and Maya Dorsett, uh, Megan Corrie, me and, of course, Hillary Gates. Uh, Casey, just coming back to – and I've – drilled you on this on previous podcasts and interviews. Of course, ESD11 is a new organization. You've had to virtually start from scratch with your staff. How have you kind of incorporated that into the last year of that organization?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's it's been tough because we have all of the other operational hurdles, the logistical hurdles, the supply chain hurdles, the pandemic hurdles, everything else that's been thrown at us over this past year. So has it been ideal no way! It's, it's impossible for anything to have been ideal over the last year. We've managed to have quarterly uh, mandatory continuing education events starting in the first quarter of our existence. Pretty, pretty proud of that. Our uh, clinical team just did an exceptional job getting that off the ground. It was for those of you with established services and uh, you know maturity and a foundation built. Uh, you know, I have. MCHD EMS on the other side is sort of to sort of look at as the other example that's had a, uh, just a stellar education program for decades. I, I can't lie and say that I took it for granted until I had uh, you know perspective built in from the esc eleven experience. So getting off the ground and being able to have CE has been amazing. We've actually incorporated some of this just out of necessity, some of it medic desire and medic request. But we've alternated between live and virtual continuing education programs thus far. So we've had every other one and tried to incorporate some skills into the live sessions and a little more bread and butter, sort of more conducive to a zoom top setting um, for our others. So we've, we've done that. We've also recorded some other topics uh, that we posted up on our website, nothing terribly spectacular there, but you run into these discussions in, in clinical reviews and run reviews. Hey, you know, the medics really don't have a clear, clear understanding of hypertensive emergency and end organ damage, which of course they don't because it's a topic that's been mistaught and misunderstood for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. I still see my emergency department partners, you know, firing off oral clonidine. It gives me little complex seizures when I see it, but it happens throughout emergency medicine. And there's no surprise that when you bring in a group of medics from across the state, across the nation, across the world, literally, that they don't have a cohesive foundation to approach things like that that aren't taught well, even in emergency medicine and practice well. So what we've done is we just try to target a couple of those each month and record those and use our uh, LMS platform to distribute that material and say, hey, this isn't required, but here's some time with the medical director. Here's some topics that we pulled from clinical run reviews and from discussions that we feel like we need to not necessarily remediate anyone, just set the expectation, you know, so they can hear it from me and hear the, uh, the teaching and the, and the background in the literature and, and sort of my expectations. Cause it's hard to go to a clinical review and say, Hey, you didn't do the dose of labetalol correctly here. This patient didn't need rapid blood pressure lowering when they've not ever been taught that by me. So I don't think that's even, I don't think that's even fair. They have to have the expectations clearly laid out before we can even. You know, start to have a, a real conversation. Impressive, so,
1: um, Casey. That uh, you get the perspective of running um, one agency and starting up another, uh, and uh, and and seeing how the education is going to work there. Um, you've had kind of a busy year, I think.
2: Yeah, I think you hit on two main things here too. Uh, one is that there's we have this conflict or or these layers. One is that we really want to use evidence. To drive our education, right? We want to use the the best evidence from the literature to drive the clinical education. You just hit on that, but we have another layer to that. We also want to use the best evidence in education to get the, um, you know, and I don't want to say delivery. I'm always trying to find another word because it is content delivery, but really it's content, you know, reception on the part of the student. How do we? How do we create this this group of lifelong learners who want to take it up themselves? And that's kind of the goal in education is not you know I'm going to tell you. We want them to be able to um, to become lifelong learners and get out there and find that uh, in in good you know sources and then and then you know turn to their medical director um, as a result. So I think that both of those aspects are are important and and I think we have emphasized in EMS the the part of the, the the content, which I think is fine because we want to use the best evidence to to uh, you know put it into our education i think that's that 's absolutely fine, and then I think what this um, change though at the national registry addresses is how and and that gets to um, what Maya was saying earlier, which is it 's all got to be founded in the objectives. what is your objective? what is it that you 're trying? to make sure that the students leave with what is the desired outcome and then build the educational model based upon which, how you think you could best achieve it. Is it best achieved through, a, you know, uh, targeted simulations? Is it best achieved through, can I do it virtually? If it's a clinical decision, maybe I can use, um, you know, innovative virtual simulation, but maybe it's something where I need a, a procedural skills practice as well, where I need them, you know, live. And if they are live, can I do that in this, in a hybrid lab format where I don't even have to be there? Where you know, I, we looked at studies out of Lithuania and other places that have had these standalone labs that where where students can go in in groups and this is either medical students but go in in groups and perform um procedural skills like tracheal intubation um in a kind of short simulated format uh it's recorded and they're either getting live feedback from a someone online who's watching or they're actually getting um recorded and they get recorded feedback uh so and it's shown like. Vast improvements in, in actual, and, and this is translational research too, not just translating to, oh, they did better on a written test. They did better on a, on a mannequin. They actually graded, um, students in the OR uh, alongside blinded anesthesiologists who didn't know the difference between the students who are in the hybrid situation versus ones who got traditional kind of lecture followed by skills and found incredible differences in performance. So there's there's some really good evidence to support some very innovative ways of doing um, education that's not in that kind of traditional way. Um, the other point I think that you make, uh, I think it's important to know that I don't think you necessarily, and I think people really go out there and think you need to have this formal education. I need to have a master's in education in order to be a good educator. And and I don't think so. I think we just need to support our faculty better. We need to support our instructors better. We need to stop saying, oh, you have a shoulder injury. Well, just go to training. Um, you know, and, and, oh, you're retired. Now I'm just going to go teach over at the college. And they just get thrown into the wolves and, and not understanding all of the things like learning outcomes assessment and basing your, um, you know, drive, using evidence to drive, um, your decisions and and how you teach. It takes trial and error and a lot of failure. And we've got to talk about those as educators and education's very ego driven. We don't want to talk about failures. We don't want to get into groups and talk about how I tried this thing and it really didn't work. Um, You know, so it's, that's a a culture we have to change in education in general. And certainly it's hard hard in EMS education, but I, I do, I don't think we support our faculty enough um, and, and then we blame them, you know, well, that one does this or, or that the wrong way. Yeah. So,
4: yeah, anyway. I mean, I think, right, we don't actually give our faculty useful feedback very often. Mm-hmm. Right. So as educators, we know that you need feedback to improve, but then yeah. we don't actually support our faculty with that type of feedback. I think that education is sometimes a lot like um Quality improvement, but in the way that like people get sort of stuck in this sort of like quality assurance thing look Mm -hmm. or things are like, here's the problem. And I've eliminated this one case or talked to this one person, or I've put out this memo and I think I've improved it. People are like, I delivered the education. Therefore it was received and we have to be better about actually measuring our outcomes and things that are more than pass rates on a particular you know, test or something else, but in terms of the things that actually matter and which the beauty of EMS education, right. Is these are the most adult learners there are. (laughs) I think it's like one of the greatest challenges in medical education. Right, I have my paramedic students for a year and the things I teach them are like directly applicable to -hmm. decisions that they are going to make for patients in a very short period of time. Right. And sort of their behavior in that. So I just, you know, not to like, skirt the, like, change the conversation a little bit. But I think that's, I think that's key. But I also think that it means that for a lot of EMS stuff, we have to think about how do we get to some of those higher order things. I do think that there is a lot of, I do think, I was going to say that I think that it's worth sort of thinking about what really is the purpose of continuing education. Mm
1: -hmm.
4: Right. So we sort of like take for granted that like you need some education, (laughs) right? Like And, and part of it is I think about there's the education I do that checks off my continuing education requirements. And then there's all the other stuff that I do because it helps me be a better physician. And that is actually like never track, right? Like The number of papers I read, the, the most useful thing I do, right? Which is look up what happens to my patients, mm-hmm. which needs to happen more for EMS and then like read about their pathology, right? Like that stuff is not actually tracked, but that is actually the stuff that allows me to improve as a clinician over time. So I think that there's sort of a lot of messiness in Gray about really what is the purpose of continuing education? How is that relevant to right, the certification process, which is the context we're talking about it now? And then I also think that there's a lot of things that overlap things that are credentialing versus certification and licensure. Um, And this happens in the initial education space where people think that I graduate a medic and they're like ready to wear off the shelf, put them in the back, (laughs) make them take care of patients without having sort of the realizing that there is still a gap (laughs) between an entry level medic and, you know, the definition of you know, competency, which is you, you're happy if they take care of somebody that you love, right?
2: Like that's the, that's the definition of. Can you please do a podcast on that one little piece right there? And that's the trans, the the new grad, why don't we have new grad programs? Why don't we have a, I mean, people do, but why don't we have some kind of standards that we all agree upon so that there's a transition for that new medic rather than, you know, I, I think that's what makes preceptors so anxious. Uh to sign people off or to say that they're a safe entry level paramedic is they they know where they're headed and and they get nervous about it, so yeah yeah, so,
4: yeah, I think that when we talk about like the distributive education and the certification, I think that right now we're sort of doing the best we can, knowing that there needs to be something, but I think a lot is going to continue to change in the next five, ten years based on things like research about what is the relationship between right all these different components and your ability to maintain competency. Because the reality is if you do nothing, you are no longer competent very soon because you're not up to date on the evidence and your skills go out of date and everything else. So there has to be something, but what that something is, I think we make our best estimation at any given time with the information we have, but just like the evidence that will continue to, to change as we learn more about how to accomplish that end goal.
3: Yeah. I want to, I want to hit on one thing of one thing of Me- Megan's a few minutes ago about not having to have the formal training or a formal degree. And, and I would agree with that wholeheartedly, but I also still believe that you need to have those mm-hmm. people within your sphere that you can lean on. To sort of check yourself, for lack of a better term, to make sure that just because I've given a hundred lectures doesn't mean that those lectures are any good. They just mean I've given a hundred lectures. Is 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 the is the style decent? Is the is the tone relatable? Are there you know is the topic length appropriate? There's lots of questions that, that we can ask from a like y'all talked about from a feedback standpoint. So yeah, I don't think it's reasonable or or realistic to expect that EMS educators can all have education degrees. It's just not the way that the system's set up. But to lean on the experts and uh, use best evidence is vital. Well, I don't I don't, I don't uh, have you know the the experience with coding and R as say Jeff Jarvis or Remley Crow, but I surely ask those folks questions when it comes when it comes to the clinical decision making process from, you know, an airway management standpoint or a chemical restraint slash sedation situation or what the evidence means, you know, so it can be digested into the into a practical application that's reasonable for your service. So I I don't think that it means that we can all just do it because I, I don't know that I can, but I sure I'm open to suggestions on how to get better. The second piece I would say is that you still have to have the service-wide value and the service-wide emphasis on continue, continuing education that's directly related to your service issues that you have, and that's going to be driven by quality and hopefully good quality and, and, and good good data. Now, is it a formal PDSA, is a formal – Uh, data collection? And are you going to peer review, publish that? Probably not in most services. So I don't want to get too far off in the anecdote lane, but if you're creating an environment where your medics are curious and inquisitive, and it's an expectation that they're looking in a forward thinking manner to, to clinical practice, I do think there's a way that you can sort of feel that and judge that anecdotally and and push that. I don't think that can be the be-all, end-all, and there needs to be some formal data that's involved there. But, you know, from a podcast standpoint, at NCHD, our podcast came directly out of a need for non-mandatory education. And when I was hired, they said, we need non-mandatory education. Put something together. And I said, okay. And so I sat down and worked really hard on some PowerPoints. We are going to do a medical director mailbag on off months, from CE, so the medics could come in and, and and we could do a clinical discussion. I sent a poll, I asked for topics, what they want to talk about. And we did you know, diabetes management, CHF versus COPD. How do we diagnose that in the emergency department? I can still remember the topics. They put some time in because we were going to do two hours at a time. We didn't want to make it a 15-minute ordeal. And the yes. same 13 people <laughs> showed up each time. And by the end of the year, I thought about the hours that I put in, the hours that I build. Cost of the service, and just there was. We tried gift cards. We tried all kinds of things to try to get people to show up, and and no one showed up. And I got in the car one day, and I plugged my phone in. You know how your phone sometimes just randomly plays in your car, and Scott Weingart's voice came in over my shoulder as I was driving home, and it hit me. I don't go to the hospital on my Tuesday when I'm not working to listen to some schmo talk, and no one. That's that's unrealistic. That's ridiculous. And so. I don't know why it took a year to figure out medics aren't going to do that either. Uh, so the real reason behind my podcast experience was just how can we get our voice out to the medics as a medical director team that Dr. Dixon and I have at MCHD. And they know us, they hear us, they can hear those foundational sort of topics. And it will lead to hopefully in passing in the hallway and passing in the emergency department, more clinical discussion. And that's what we felt the most early on. We've done, we've done some other informal more formal polling of, of retention and preferred delivery method of the education and look at some really interesting age-related numbers as far as who was using it, and who was listening that surprised me a little bit because the older medics were using it, enjoyed it just as much as the younger medics, which I really liked. That was awesome. Uh, but it was really out of just failure that that came about because I spent a year sort of drowning in quicksand before we stumbled on a delivery method that worked. Now, what's the retention of of the podcast medium and how well does that translate into actual clinical practice? Those questions, if they've been answered, they're not necessarily stellar at times, but I can tell you for our service, it's improved the the morale and the engagement medic to medical director drastically. And that's an anecdotal story. So you can chalk that up wherever you like.
2: I'm excited when you, when you start talking about the, the podcast and what's been going on since COVID. I just, um, the Prodigy Project, what the the research project, right. the MCHD podcast that you work. I mean, it's amazing the the reach everything has uh, now, yeah. and you know, listening to some of the different podcasts, you feel like you're part of the systems. You know, when you listen to the various podcasts and they're doing case review, you, you feel like you know um these people, you feel like you're, they're your medical director. So now all of a sudden our world is open to these medical directors and aren't even our medical directors. Um, and and th- it, that's what it does. It really does energize. And you do get podcast fatigue, just like you do anything else. But I'm finding that people get the fatigue, they return to their spa playlist or whatever. <laughs> playlist they have on their, you know, iPhones and, and Androids. And, and then they come back to it and they return to it and say, well, I need more. Um, so I love that you use the word curious because I think that again, creating those learners that, that curiosity, everyone is curious. Um, they may not show it, but that's, you know, human nature. And so I think that's, I love hearing that.
0: We actually, uh, enroll 40,000 medics into refresh. Uh, which mm-hmm. just blew our minds and uh, we uh, Tom Boothley and I were going yes uh, we'd be lucky if we get 5000 oh now we're at 10 oh crap and so it went on from there but uh, you know in in that theme of course we're still carrying on by working with our friends at real emergency right H?
1: We have uh, 35,000 views of our real emergency episodes where we have three physicians, uh, four physicians sometimes, a couple of medics, um, and some special guests review case footage. That's usually uh, body cam footage. We've had uh, incredible engagement, um, and Casey, it's exactly what you talked about earlier when you said... Um, you know, w- walking through a case with your medical director one-on-one, or in this case, it's, um, six, six or seven people walking through a case, but people can chime in. And it gets that engagement that, um, distributive education, or in this case, um, because it's live and, and we're able to have that, uh, learner to instructor live engagement, people can ask questions and say, what do I do next? Or, um, what about this drug? And it's been incredibly powerful and, Uh, I I urge everyone to check it out on YouTube, and and especially educators. When I was teaching EMS, I don't get to teach it as much as I used to, but when I was teaching an EMS, there were many times when I thought to myself, I have to go teach this topic. Boy, I'm not that good at this topic. It is not my cup of tea, or I'm not as uh, up-to-date as I want to be. I wish I could get the expert on this topic. Well, that's what real emergency does, and that's what the world of Zoom does, and that's what uh, the ability to use um, guest speakers on, on the internet um, has just been an incredible um, boost to our, our industry, because you do get the person who knows the most about it or the person who wrote the paper um, to talk about it. And um, I have no business talking about some of those topics, especially if I'm just looking at a PowerPoint from a, 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 a textbook and hoping I get it mostly right. So um, I, I really want to make sure that we end the podcast today with a few tips and tricks on the educator side. So for those instructors who are listening, Megan, how would you sort of uh, guide them in their decision-making about what, I know you don 't you said you didn 't want to keep using the word delivery, but what delivery <laughs> mode uh, or method of instruction that they should be thinking about when they 're thinking about their learning objectives so when they when they 're establishing by the end of this class, I want students to be able to do x y z what should they be thinking about when they think uh, should this be mostly skills driven should it be um, a little bit of uh, lecture small group work should I do um, uh, a lecture online first and then bring them back like uh, Maya was talking about bring and uh, them talk, um, talking through a case what are some tips for how to plan your lists
2: there's never one answer so always know that there's never just one answer that you'll say oh, it has to be this one thing so even with the outcome in mind there's there be creative and remember um, to use uh, a community of practice, you know, talk to some of the respected educators that you know people that and and ones that you believe um, really taught you how to t- how to learn or how to find that in yourself. Um, do a lot of of investigating about best practices, and if you're at a college, that's certainly available to you. You usually have, you know, departments of of especially in distance education now. If you're looking especially toward distance education, but hybrid education and, and communities of practice. But in EMS, we have communities of practice right in front of us. So we have uh, NEMC and NAMSP and other organizations that you can be part of that you don't have to you know, leave and go to a conference either if you can't afford it. Um, you can, and again, that's the beauty of the podcast and the online is there's all kinds of resources out there. So connect with with those. And then there's all kinds of, of resources like instructor courses where you can connect with others. Networking is really, really important. Um, and then uh, using evidence to drive your practice, uh, whether that's using your evidence to drive your clinical practice or your teaching practice, I think is important.
1: Great. And Casey, you mentioned to us that um, you had also started in your agency a case of the quarter that was primarily provider driven. And I really love that idea for the curiosity standpoint, but also for um, getting getting your medics and your EMTs to say, I ran this call, I didn't fully understand it, I don't know if I got it right, I, I, or I think I did a really great job and I want to tell other people about it, or I did some research on the strange tea that the lady ordered on the internet and why it made her, you know, seize. What, how has that uh, gone for your agency and what advice would you have for others who want to start something like that?
3: We do it a little differently in both services. In, at NCHD, we, and it, it can be presented. It can be brought to us. We can find it in quality or the medics are, are welcome to bring them to us. And we really try to pick ones that mesh with our educational goals and that also are, we feel like will be valuable to, to the medics. So it's not a free for all. I don't really want to make it like the medics just bring us cases and they automatically get to present them because that might be a bit unruly. So we do have some oversight over that and they can come to us organically or we can find them in, in quality review. And then that's a 20 to 30 minute piece of every uh, mandatory CE. So usually the medic will give the case presentation, we'll let the audience sort of chime in and talk, what would you do? What do you think? What's your differential? What would your treatment plan be? And then either Dr. Dixon and I will wrap up with sort of the medical director, clinical foundational piece. At ESC 11, we do more actual chart review. So in other words, we'll pull the chart into the presentation and let the medics sort of walk through the chart itself. It's a little more uh, Office of the Medical Director pick as opposed to a medic pick, but some of them are ones that the medics bring us. And again, we try to target problems, places we see remediation needs to happen, or if somebody's doing something exceptionally and we feel like that's the model we want the other medics to adapt or adopt to will will present that way. So we just try to make sure that they're getting some education from their own cases because in a busy service, you're seeing so much great pathology. There's no reason not to emphasize that. I'd also say, you know, to some of Megan's points, copying is absolutely positively on the table for me. For instance, when I hear Maya talk and I've heard her speak before, you can, it's entirely obvious that number one, she's authentic and number two, she cares about the medics. So I think that if you don't care about your medics when you're up there talking to them, you're wasting their time. If you're up there for yourself or for other uh, ulterior motives, you know, that that can become pretty obvious pretty quickly. I also believe from from a podcast link standpoint, I don't believe I'm wasting folks' time. I think shorter episode length, uh, episodes to get to the educational point is, is our goal. I know there are different models out there for podcasting, but I settled on that one pretty quickly. Uh, you know, uh, Salim at Rebel EM, I love his visuals. I love his colors and his fonts. I freely have used his stuff as a guide for some of my slides. So I don't think you have to reinvent the wheel in this. And I I thoroughly have done a 180 on asking folks for help since I started in EMS, as far as sending emails, cold calls, cold texts, Mm -hmm. folks are all willing to help and all willing to lend expertise, whether it's protocol development, educational development, no matter what it is. So I've become much more comfortable with doing just that and just sending an email out and saying, Hey, would you help me with this? Or what are your thoughts on this? I had a conversation with someone this morning on an unrelated topic. That's a giant in, in the world that we were discussing. And I just hung up the phone and thought, I cannot imagine five, seven years ago, making that phone call. And it was as simple as one email, one connection. And then my phone rang and we had a 20 minute discussion and my questions were answered. So uh, that would, that would be some of the other little tidbits from my standpoint.
0: But that's fantastic. Talking about creating training outcomes from, you know, clinical practice, we use the first pass system in Richmond where therefore we could do a 100% chart review um, pretty much instantaneously. And we create sort of a training station next to the clock. In, so you come in. And I remember one distinct example. We our first time intubation rate was not really good, and first pass highlighted that. And so we put in you'd, you'd clock in, you'd you'd put you'd put a put a tube in, and then you go to work. And actually, we saw over time, measurably, that improved. And so therefore, every call, I believe, has a training ending, um, whether you know review and then into into learning something new or developing a skill. So I think that uh, you know this is the way forward. Uh, Maya, I think you're going to give us a, a an example as well.
4: Um, I don't know so much an example um, about, or rather, uh, something about why I think it's so important to have flexibility on distributive education. Um, part of it is my end goal and everything. Right is to have people who are able to self assess and are excited about improvement. I think that's what we want for everybody. Right to. Have that level of engagement, um, investment in what you're doing, but also not just say, like, I want to improve, but have a mechanism by which they are able to improve themselves and have access to sort of the education and the feedback to do that. When I think about where I've learned about new things or incorporated new ideas or kept myself up to date, right? A lot of that is distributive education. As I listen to a podcast, like, Right. Like I take care of lots of oncology patients. I can't keep up on all the drugs that they're on. So this past weekend, right, I listened to a podcast on checkpoint inhibitors so that I could be more prepared. Um, and that allows me to say, you know, I don't have the breakdown in my continuing education requirements as a physician that says I need to have this in this category. But that easily right, can fit into some other category so I can tailor that content to what it is that I need and find stuff that is engaging to me based on what I enjoy doing. The the thing that breaks my heart in education is when we have like mandatory button seat stuff that kills people's enthusiasm for learning and presents, you know, education as something that is sort of like not engaging. It's a checkbox that you do, which Mm -hmm. doesn't, Right, like, my goal is that every single time we do education, I that what we try to do with like mandatory learning is I always show the data, right? So, if I'm going to be talking, for example, like our last education was on assessment for posterior stroke, right? Like, I show them our data to say, why are we even talking about this so that they're engaged, um, and then there has to be some practical component and then there can be follow up. But I think that there's lots of education that isn't feeding that curiosity. <laughs> and, um, and I think that doesn't sort of like feed the, the culture that we want for everybody, right? Like, I think I get a little bit of joy out of learning something new and being able to apply it in a way that makes it so I take better care of a subsequent patient. That is really satisfying. That is a return of investment for my education. And that's what I want for everybody. And so I think this allows us the flexibility to think about how we create that as a culture. Um, I think it can go the other way too, which is why we got to be like vigilant and engaged from like an education standpoint um, and give guidance along the way.
0: Excellent. Those are some great words to bring us to an end. And if you get a chance out there, everybody, to take part in a podcast, don't shy away from it because Hillary and I know people go, oh, I don't know what to say. How can we possibly talk about things? We've been going here for an hour, believe it or not, and uh, it's it's always exciting because you get like minded people having a great conversation. And if you're still listening to us out there after an hour, thank you for bearing with us. If you're on the truck, of course, make sure you've got both hands on the wheel and the eyes on the road. But also, please make sure that uh, you know you're enjoying what uh, what we have to say here. But more importantly, how can we keep up with you guys and follow you? Let's go to UKC. So, if you
3: want to check out our podcast, MCHD Paramedic Podcast. Search where you search for your podcast that's where we are uh, ESD11 if you're interested in our service at ESD11 we have a brand new website there so check out our website it's uh, really sleek there might be a video or two of me on there i really prefer the podcast medium because you don't to see my face but there is some video footage on there of what we're about uh, clinically operationally as a service so uh, both both spots in the greater Houston area so come work for us we need we need paramedics uh, we need
0: EMTs we need ANTs so yeah right two things there then search for us where you search for your podcasts that is so r and going forward first of all and secondly I challenge you all to go and look at the Fort Worth Police Department recruitment video that they just put out it is glorious and it's going to get prizes for recruiting it's going to do wonders for police recruitments um little few plugs there uh, Megan how can we follow you and get in touch
2: uh, we actually run a monthly webinar at the Free Hospital Care Research Forum on education research. And actually, Rumley Crow and, and Tony do uh, uh, one on the clinical on the second Monday, but uh, we do one specifically on education. So I think it would be great. Um, that's a great resource to, you know, come and listen and talk about uh, the the different types of education out there, the research, the evidence-based practice in in education. So I think, um, and we also have a a YouTube channel. It's prehospitalcare.org is the website, and you can register for the next monthly one. You can go to our YouTube channel and look up the past ones uh, and check it out.
4: But I was going to say, I've personally learned a lot about education from the, I watch the YouTube videos because I'm very often working, but I've learned a ton. (laughs)
0: Excellent. Well, keep talking and tell us how we can follow you, Maya.
4: Or well, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm boring and it's at Maya Dorset. And on various prodigy things.
0: <laughs> yes, you can follow, follow her on Twitter, on Escalators, on uh, YouTube, on everywhere. So uh, we are everywhere. And by the way, we're now, we're now processed and have recorded season four of On the Escalator with. And uh, tune in every Wednesday for a new episode of Absolute Pearls from um, some amazing people. Hilary, do you want to bring us home?
1: Yes, I will um, do my regular Pollyanna Act right now. I want everyone out there to know that um, humans want to learn. Humans are naturally curious and we need to feed that curiosity. So when you're feeling like your medics or your providers or your clinicians are down in the dumps or uh, not very excited or not interested, it's your job to engage them. And. Um, It's uh, an incredible thing when good education comes to your agency or a person comes and teaches for you or you get a national expert uh, and the ears perk up and the backs get straighter and the phones get put away and people pay attention because they want to learn, they want to do better, and they want to help their patients. So I always have that in the back of my mind and um, when I'm feeling frustrated by the process or by the work I'm doing, um, it helps me get through that. I also just wanna say one more thing about being an educator. And um, what's so important is to take advantage of the willing and generous minds out there who have already done what you're trying to do and not to reinvent the wheel because someone else has already done that, um, just as Casey said. And all you have to do to get their information is ask them. I've never been said no to when I ask another educator for help with something, and that's because we all want to help each other.
0: Absolute wise words, a great phrase to finish off on. Um, I'd like to thank, on all of our behalf, so our guests, Dr. Casey Patrick and Megan Curry, our guest host, Dr. Maya Dorsett. She's been Hillary Gates, I've been Rob Lawrence, and until next time, bye for now.